hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this week we're going to be talking about something which is very important at the moment. We did discuss it a few podcasts back. We were talking about how sailors are able perhaps to deal with some of the restrictions and some of the rigors of COVID-19 a little bit more than other people. But I wanted to hone in this week on one particular thing, which perhaps is reaching a more critical point now, and yet perhaps is uh, something we've become used to and are not thinking of so much, and that is the effects of isolation. So for anybody who has been pushed into an isolated position, you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that there's a big difference between being alone and loneliness. Being alone can be rather fulfilling. It can be uh, an exciting opportunity to be more introspective, to get jobs done that you've been waiting to do for years, if not decades. It can be a really nutritional and beneficial expansive time in your life. The problem is when aloneness turns into loneliness and then a lot of negative thoughts come to our minds, a lot of negative um, developments can occur within our psychology and within our physiology. So I have no particular interest in making this a negative or downward spiraling topic. I'm not here to uh, list everything that can be bad about isolation, but I think it's something that we need to be aware of at the moment because a lot of people are under pressure and we have seen that starting to leak out into other areas of our culture, uh, the news, our behavior as individuals. And I think it's there's no secret that a lot of it stems from people's difficulties with being isolated. So isolation for me has been something which I have alternately massively enjoyed and really, really hated. I've had the most dramatically developmental experiences on my own, far from land, on boats, and also, I should add, on, on expedition all over Asia when I work for Outward Bound. I've not always been on the sea. Being on your own is something which can really be a, a period of elation and excitement and enjoyment and, uh, and in no way anything negative at all. What is happening at the moment with the development of uh, the restrictions for COVID-19 is that I think a lot of different psychological triggers are being pulled without perhaps much consideration uh, by uh, administrative bodies. That being said, we all are aware that at the moment, the way things are, we need to do whatever we possibly can to try and protect those most at risk from COVID-19. We are already seeing various different strains of COVID-19. We've got the Indian strain. We have this much more virulent strain, which has come from the UK and is now uh, in Canada as of the last week. We are seeing mutations of this and we are seeing a development within the government's abilities to deal with it. The only things that we have to protect ourselves for the vast majority of the population in the here and now is social distancing, uh, mask wearing, and, uh, and staying 
at home as much as possible. It's this week, Ontario has just issued a, a stay at home order uh, within the um, emergency conditions, which they've now uh, implemented across across the greater parts of uh, Toronto, through the cities, and I think that extends uh, out into the whole of Ontario. So we know that we have to do whatever's possible, but that is coming at a cost. And it's a worrying thing that we have to try and balance out now the effects that we can see against the effects that we can't see. The effects that we can see are on the news. There are people in hospitals, there are people um, wearing masks on the streets. There are terrible stories, of course, of people being lost to the, to the virus. But the unseen issue is the psychological effects that COVID-19 is going to have in the years to come. Now, there's a lot of research that's been done on this kind of thing, as you might imagine. The mental health consequences of COVID-19 it may be a unique situation that we have a virus, but there's been a lot of research looking at the effect of isolation on human beings. And this is not uh, a problem which we can't see coming. It might surprise you that one of the effects that you can get after a long period of isolation is PTSD. We normally think of PTSD as being you know, shell-shocked. That's what they used to call it. And people came back from the Vietnam War, the Korean War, they were shell-shocked. Uh, we think of very dramatic incidences as creating post-traumatic stress disorder. But if you are finding being on your own very traumatic, when that has come to an end, post-trauma, you may have a lot of stress which has been implemented and, and, and entered into your life because of that long period of isolation. So you can end up with PTSD from being on your own and not having any ability to, to, to break that. I took the opportunity in the last couple of days to just monitor how much interaction I'm having with people because for me at the moment, I am alone. I am not lonely, I am alone. I'm very lucky that where I live here in Nova Scotia, we have a couple of acres of land um, have a lovely uh, garden. It's obviously the depths of winter, but uh, there's still jobs to be done, pick things up, clear things up. Uh, the Open 60, the Pride of Nova Scotia, is sitting at the end of the dock, and there's not much I can do on board there either at the moment. But I can go down, I can monitor, I can uh, do, you know check the mooring and do, do little jobs that need doing. Uh, I also have a barn, so I can go into that. So there's different physical spaces I can go into, and I'm very lucky that I can sit down and talk to you guys almost... You know, <laughs> you're not talking back. It is at least one side of a conversation. So I have a number of things which are allowing me to stay within the bounds of uh, alone and I'm not feeling lonely. But I took the opportunity to go um, along my normal day's path and just monitor how many people I had meaningful interactions with because I calculated that for many people, obviously they won't be on some big piece of land they're in an apartment or in their house and they haven't got some boat at the end of the dock that they're going to look at and they're not sitting down talking for an hour every day to uh, a group of people all over the world so how much interaction are they getting so as I woke up in the morning I interacted with my cat uh, I have a little cat called Bob he likes to jump up on the bed and uh, he'll kind of wake me up around seven o'clock so that's an interaction with another living being 
you know, I may spoil him to death, but at the end of the day, um, he's clearly not another like sent sentient life form of an intelligence that's going to give me meaningful interaction. But I was interacting with him and, uh, and I find that to be a positive thing. Then I came downstairs, I put on the radio and I listened to the people on the radio, uh, chatting away. And uh, I always listen to UK radio stations, although I live in Canada. So I think something must have happened on the radio station in the UK on Radio 2 that I listen to, where they've been literally told in the last couple of weeks, keep everything positive. I think with the UK going through the terrible rigors that it's going through at the moment with huge death rates um, because of COVID, I think that rather than getting into really uh, challenging uh, narratives and, and, and in-depth kind of uh, probing stories. The journalists, uh, the reporters, the, the broadcasters, sorry, on Radio 2 have, uh, have been told by somebody above, y- your job is now keep people upbeat. So they're very chatty. There's loads, and I, I could hear like the other side of a conversation. I'm, I'm not doing the talking. They're not talking to me, but I am listening to them chit-chatting amongst themselves and, and talking to me as though I'm a person. And I, as I went through these little interactions, just, just the first 15 minutes of my day, I realized that um, I was getting something from them. Uh, I was getting some kind of uh, positive feedback from the fact I was interacting with a cat, you know, with a brain the size of a walnut, but I was getting something from it. And I was getting something from listening to the radio. I then got on with my uh, morning's work and I was doing emailing. So again, I'm just one side of a conversation. And I did note that I think during the period of time that we've all been locked down, my style in correspondence has maybe become, well, I would, I would say it's actually become a little bit harder, uh, I'm harder in the way I'm interacting with folks than I perhaps was before. I wonder if my social skills are being affected by the fact that I don't have to interact with people. I, it's a little bit kind of uh, worrying to say that, but I, I think that uh, I, I noticed that a little bit of distance has perhaps opened up that wasn't there before, um, where I'm feeling that when I interact with people, they're just on a computer screen or a phone screen. And then when I start to email them, I don't really have the same level of uh, emotional connection that I had before. So whilst I was noting some of the good things that are happening to me, I also recognize, hey, that's that's not the best thing. That's not uh, something I want to uh, uh, extol in the rest of my life. I then went to the uh, supermarket and there was a number of people there. I would imagine maybe 15, something like that. And I did catch you know, a little bit of eye contact with people as I was going up and down the, li- uh, the aisles. They've got those little arrows on the floor now. So you're always kind of moving in one direction. There's no kind of crossing moments unless you're at the uh well not in the aisles but at the top of the shop and the bottom of the shop where you can kind of uh, go anywhere you want there was a lot less interaction i couldn't see people's faces couldn't see their mouths and i realized that i was very cut off from people and and feeling um that there was a barrier between me and them with with wearing the mask as soon as I realized that, the next time I caught eye contact with somebody, I really tried to smile with my whole face, with my eyes, with everything, to try and demonstrate to that person that there was a smile under the mask. There was a little bit of something from them, but nothing too much. But I realized that you know, that's very challenging, that you can't show basic emotions and that 
you know, there are parts of our brain which just deal with faces. There is actually a kind of brain damage that you can get where you cannot perceive faces. A baby's ability to recognize its caregivers very, very early on is key to our survival because we're so useless as, as infants. But if that uh, area of human interaction is suddenly cut off by half of the face being covered with a mask, it may not be at a intellectual level, at a, at a conscious level that we're aware that something is happening, but certainly at a subconscious level, certainly something deeper inside us, it is known through psychological testing that there is a part of the body that is, or part of the brain rather, that is just reacting to faces. And now that part of the brain has got very little to go on. So I interacted with the cashier that, uh, that dealt with my, um, my, uh, my, my things going through the supermarket, going through the checkout. But again, there's a, a plastic screen between myself and that person. We are about six feet apart, um, even though, and she's got a mask on, I've got a mask on, there's a plastic screen that, you know, everything is separating us up. I think thing, by the time I got to lunchtime and got back to the house, I'd had eye contact with three people. I'd listened to the radio, I'd interacted with my cat, and that was it. And I was thinking, wow, this is really, this is really starting to get kind of interesting to, to analyze what's happening to me. And then around two o'clock, uh, a, a package came. I've been waiting for it. It's a new water pump for the pride of Nova Scotia. I want to have some spares on board and I want to start collecting things now, which uh, I'm able to fit, I'm able to work on because I've got a bit of a mechanical background that uh, you wouldn't normally have with you on a boat. So I've been starting to collect these things together and indeed, um, down the driveway comes the delivery driver. And I, because I've been thinking about this, I recognize something that's, uh, I think, important, which is that I felt that that person coming down my driveway was somehow a, uh, an imposition on me, that there was a, uh, my isolation, my social, my social isolation was starting to make me feel that other human beings were a threat to me and not necessarily something beneficial. If you think about all of the chat that we've uh, heard over time, the different ways that we've been uh, shown it, uh, the Greek philosopher Aristotle says that man is a social animal. The problem is that now our first instinct may be to react angrily uh, to other human beings around us in a direct opposition to our basic coding but to act angrily because we feel that these people are potentially threatening our safety. And I think having had just a few days of analyzing this stuff, I've started to realize just within me, although I am happily alone, I am starting to get a little bit isolated from other human beings. I'm not uh, snapping at people, I'm not angry at people, but there's something something that wasn't there before, something that's changed. And uh, I start to worry for those who may be in a lot more isolated situation, for those who uh, are not able to distract themselves with the things that I am, who don't even have perhaps the interactions that I've got, though they are limited. I wonder for those people, what's going to happen on the other side of COVID? And it's not me alone that's starting to think this way. There's a lot of uh, mental health professionals who were starting to raise the alarm about just how 
serious this uh, issue may be. In the news at the moment, really starting from last summer, we've got some very, very serious events starting to uh, happen. If it was a normal year, they'd be serious events. Obviously, in the US last year, we had a number of incidences that started to reveal that uh, beneath a uh, supposedly accepting and balanced equal community, there is still a lot of um, institutionalized racism, which must be dealt with. And whether that be by uh, changes in administration, changes in um, each individual's philosophical outlook or uh, changes in the, the law, whatever it is, that's going to need to get worked out. Then we have issues with uh, what's happened just in Washington the last couple of days with people starting to rise up and go to the Capitol and, uh, and create uh, just mayhem on Capitol Hill. That's, again, we've never seen that. We've never seen the level of rioting that we had last year, whether it be Black Lives Matter or Trump demonstrators, or we've never seen people coming out in such uh, violence and such force. The question that a lot of people are starting to raise is, is this uh, amount of anger being developed by the fact that on top of the everyday issues that people are having to work with, suddenly now we have massive financial problems. We have health problems. We've got millions of people who have had to deal with deaths in their family. I, you know, I, I come across in the press and even in my actual everyday life, I come across people who feel that COVID is some kind of hoax. And to them, I say, get online. And instead of searching for the same things, you always search for, you know, COVID hoax, whereby then the media and Google and YouTube being what they are, they will give you the answer to that question. Look for some other search parameters. Look for the um, the incredibly moving videos where people are explaining their story, uh, what has happened in their family, the loss of loved ones. I used to follow a, well, I suppose I do follow still, a uh, YouTube channel called Patrick Childress Sailing. And I don't know if you've ever caught him. Patrick Childress was a fantastic uh, sailor. He had a, a cruising boat, beautiful cruising boat with his wife, and they were off around the world living the dream. He and his wife ended up in Cape Town. They both got COVID, and unfortunately, Patrick didn't make it. Um, one of the people who, through YouTube, I felt connected to, Patrick actually written to me and gave me some encouraging words about my own YouTube channel and things that I was doing. He was someone who was you know 50,000 subscribers ahead of me, but on the same path and, and happy to give out some information and give out some, um, some props for what I was doing. And I tuned in one day to see his wife in tears explaining the story of what had happened to him. So, you know, the stories are out there, the reality is out there, the facts are out there, but there is a, a huge percentage of, po of the population who feel that this is like not really happening. Whether they are right or not, they are under mental pressure because they feel that this, uh, this massively unfair lie is being foisted upon them. Therefore, from purely the point of view of mental health, they are a section of the population which is experiencing a stress which did not exist in their lives before. 
it might be very easy to kind of dismiss them, but they are potentially some of the people making some of the largest uh, uh, issues at the moment, which affect the rest of us. Other people, obviously, who have caught COVID, some have got through it very easily. Some are getting through it very slowly. Some are dealing with long COVID and the long-term ramifications of that. They are isolated within a group as well. They are isolated within a group of people for whom their story may or may not be accepted by those around them. Um, they may or may not have the liberty to go and do the things that they did before. Certainly some of the people that are affected by long COVID are unable to uh, engage in the same physical activities they did before. They've been isolated from their lives as they were before. They are under a mental pressure. These kind of uh, forces, these kind of stresses are the beginning of a series of symptoms which can end up getting us into much more mainstream areas, words and, and syndromes and, and uh, phobias that we've uh, much more understanding of. If somebody's on their own, by definition, you're not going to really kind of see them when they're on their own. You're not going to really kind of understand what they're going through because they're on their own. What we are going to end up seeing at the end of all of this, when hopefully we turn the corner and things start to get under control a little bit, is a group of people for whom uh, physical uh, uh, effects from uh, isolation and uh, mental effects from isolation are a, a new and crushing reality. Some of the things which have been uh, isolated is that these uh, feelings of being alone, of being isolated, can lead to melancholy and depression. And depression, obviously, uh, is something which can affect people on a each day, like chronic depression. You just feel down all the time. It can be that people become bipolar and they're up and down, up and down all the time, and they can't regulate their emotions. And you may have that pushed to the limit. Um, those things can end up with, obviously, thoughts of suicide, thoughts of ending things, and, uh, and moving into a very dark place. At a, a, perhaps a slightly less serious level, feelings of anxiety and mood swings are the, the beginning point for those. What state mentally will the population be in after we've gone through this? I don't think there are many people now who are not experiencing some kind of change in their lives. I remember when I was at university, we studied um, politeness theory. I studied linguistics at university. And when we uh, analyzed discourse and we analyzed different texts and uh, dialogue and characters, and one of the things that comes up is uh, what's called politeness theory, which is that when you're interacting with people, people are said to have positive and negative face. Positive face is that people want to be liked. And so a lot of the things that we do in language is that we are you know, trying to show the other person that we're in conversation with that we have a positive attitude towards them. Negative face uh, within politeness theory is where uh, people want to be unimpeded in their actions or intents. So if somebody has an idea they want to go and do something, it's a great way to get into an argument with them if you tell them no. We, if anybody's got teenage kids, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to be very, very careful to um, not just put the, the lock on something that they want to do because you will start an argument as, as quick as uh, you know, flint and steel. 
you have to be very careful to to allow them room to be able to do what it is that they feel they want to do and still within the positive uh, face thing, uh, show them that you like them as a person, but move things towards the, no, you can't borrow the car tonight. That feeling though, the um, negative face as it's called, of uh, being unimpeded in your actions, it is well known that people will start to become very anxious and very um, combative if they feel um, held back by other people around them. It is the basic tenet of putting people into prison that we remove their uh, uh, freedom, um, we remove a lot of their sovereignty, and we, we put people into prison as a punishment. We might kind of hide it behind the veil of um, we're going to rehabilitate people. And, and, and for lots of people that go into prison, that does work. But on the outside looking in, a lot of it is about deterrent. And a lot of it is about punishment. And the punishment is the removal of liberty. So we have now millions and millions, tens of millions. In fact, what am I talking about? We're probably talking in the hundreds of millions to billions of people around the world who are being put into the same mental place that prisoners are put into, that we choose not to go to. Um, and that choice keeps us on the straight and narrow and the morally straight path, so to speak. I heard on the UK uh, radio that um, workers in supermarkets feel that they're getting to an almost critical position because one of the only things that they haven't locked down is going to get groceries. On the first lockdown in the UK, they said only one person can uh, go into the store from each family. They've eased that now, but it's I don't really understand how they could have possibly not seen that this was going to happen. But people are like going to the grocery store to meet up with other people. Uh, parents taking uh, children to meet up with other parents with their children so the kids can run up and down the aisles and have fun together because it's the only place they can because all of the um, the uh, playgrounds and what have you are all closed. So the supermarket and going out uh, has become the only place that people can go. And even though they are very, very clearly putting themselves into a situation where they're in a, in, a, in a place where things can be transmitted quickly. They're still choosing that because they want to interact with people. Because like prisoners being able to, you know, I know find, if you watch too many films, too much Hollywood stuff, you know, find a little uh, pipe or find a little kind of a space they can call between cells. They might get caught by the prison guard, but it's worth it to be able to interact with someone. If you add to this a uh, definite, tangible percentage of the population that believe it's all a hoax, they are in a mental place where they are being isolated, unfairly, having their sovereignty removed, and they're having to deal with that stress all the time. So what can this end up uh, leaving us with? Well, as we say, uh, anxiety, mood swings, depression, melancholy. Um, it can also lead to things like agoraphobia. You know, if you're telling people to stay in all the time, going outside may for a large percentage of the population uh, be where they want to go, but for others, they will retreat inwards and then not want to uh, leave that space that they're in. That can end up with them in a very kind of cloistered, very small, very tight environment, which may or may not have uh, positive uh, forces acting within it. I know my uncle um, lived on his own for most of his life, uh, never married, um, had health issues, and we would go to his house. He was my uh, mother's brother, Uncle Alan, he was called. And uh, we go to Uncle Alan's house and um, 
he uh, he wouldn't have the radio on. He wouldn't have the TV on. He had a lot of papers. He was a very kind of academic guy. And he'd just be in there uh, kind of on his own. He'd go out uh, once a day or something. But he was just inside this space. And I'm sure at the beginning, you know, he had a very exciting, interesting life as a young man. But he just got more and more used to it. And whilst he somewhat resented the space and the area that he was in, he didn't do anything to change it into a more positive area. So the longer he spent in that space, the more negative. It's like snow falling on the boughs of a tree. It falls very gently. There's no perceived like dramatic moment. But in the end, that branch breaks just as surely as if it had got swept away in a storm. So um, uh, agoraphobia, um, the, the uh, version of that in terms of um, people is, of course, xenophobia. Xenophobia is more normally for foreign individuals from wherever you are from. It's the people from elsewhere. But xenophobia can also just be like anybody else, uh, anybody that you don't know directly. Anybody that's new to you can become a problem. And that ties into what I was um, noticing in myself a little bit when the delivery man came. The delivery man coming down the driveway may or may not be uh, a positive force. It might be that I go, oh, here's a face. I get to see a new person. This is great. Fantastic. I can't wait to talk to this person, even if it's for a second or two. But as he came walking down the driveway uh, today, my delivery man, he didn't have a mask on. So actually, I felt threatened by him coming down the driveway. As he came down the driveway, I had a problem with the fact this person was coming closer towards me. So it is interesting to note that um, people coming out of this lockdown may have a completely different attitude towards those who they interact with, and they may have been changed by the process of being locked down. Which is the more beneficial path has yet to be seen. I think there's a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists who are warning strongly that whilst we may have a lower death rate because of lockdown, that we may have a, uh, a new epidemic, a new, a new pandemic on the other side of this of mental health issues. The other thing which I think um, everybody has become aware of, but certainly I, uh, I, I recognize is um, there is a limiting of social skills. I recognized it with just my emailing style and what have you. I will do what I can to, to, to change that. But social skills now, I saw the bit, do you remember the first time that you went to shake someone's hand and they didn't want to shake your hand and you realized that you were in the wrong? Like, I have never experienced that. But now I don't even think to um, shake hands with somebody. There was a bit of a kind of, do we bump elbows or do we fist bump or, you know, the, no one was kind of quite sure what to do, but is that going to come back? Is that is that going to be a thing? There's lots of cultures around the world where they don't shake hands. Maybe shaking hands will be a thing for old people when we uh, get a bit further down the path. Maybe that's not where we want to go anymore. These kind of social skills are something which have... Um, developed over time when I'm in the supermarket now it's almost like you've got like a plastic ball around you you get close to someone and then your plastic ball bumps with their plastic ball and they kind of move away from you I am extremely aware of where people are around me we're all giving each other a huge amount of space I've lived obviously in the west but I've also lived in the east I've lived in China and Thailand the Philippines social space in those countries is is uh, at a different range it's not right or wrong how you do this but it those countries, it was extremely close, was completely okay, and no one feels stressed about that. But when I went back to the UK from, say, Hong Kong or the Philippines, uh, if I got that close to somebody else, I could see that they felt very imposed upon. Now that boundary has stretched further apart, 
And if you, you know, not really looking and you walk up to the checkout in the supermarket and you end up within a meter or half a meter of somebody and they turn around, don't expect them to be smiling. They're going to have a problem with that. So again, something has changed. This isolation, this, um, this movement away from each other, social distancing is the word that uh, has come uh, to us through the government and through the, the information that we've been given. But I can remember right at the very beginning of this in March of last year, a uh, psychologist even then saying we should not call it social distancing. We should call it physical distancing because social ties need to be stronger now than ever before. And I think that there was a chit chat at the beginning of all this about, wow, it's all going to bring us together and we're all going to be, you know, like one big happy family because we're going to do this and beat this together. And then they bring in the phrase social distancing and wonder why everybody is starting to become more disparate and more di divided and, uh, and things are starting to fall apart. People are under massive pressure. People are under uh, a lot of stress that they're never under before. They are being put into the same kind of positions that um, people are when they're put into prison and they're having to deal with financial difficulties and they're having to deal with uh, you know, looking after their children's academic future and homeschooling and the whole thing of it, plus the fact that they don't have any interaction with people. Are we really sure that um, what's going to happen uh, after uh, the end of the COVID-19 restrictions is being planned for now? Because we're going to have a lot of people who are going to have to, let's say at best, they're gonna, it's going to take a while to get back to where we were before. Can you imagine for a second now how good it would be to go to say a barbecue or sit around a fire pit or, or go to a party or and just be jostling with people. And can you remember when you were young, like going to the bar in a club or maybe not young, but you know, whenever last, last year or whatever the year before, pushing and shoving your way to get to the bar. Sorry, mate. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I need the three beers. Hey mate, no, hang on. There's a bit of space here. Everyone's like pushing and jostling and whatever. How long is it going to be until we get back to something like that. The choices that we have been given is um, we must do the lockdown uh, for, the, for the safety of a lot of people. And I am, to be clear, I'm 100% behind that. I'm just saying that we need to have some fixed point that we are working towards. We need to have a set of, um, of results that we are working towards. It is not going to be a very good thing if they say, yeah, lockdown, 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 and then still millions and millions of people die and millions of people go through huge amounts of stress and financial collapse and, and the dissolution of their family and all of these things happen. And, you know, we look back on it and say, well, lockdown didn't work. Like, how are people going to feel? Because when you add in the anxiety, the depression, the melancholy, the uh, mood swings, the agoraphobia, the xenophobia, you're going to have a very different population that you're giving that message to. They're going to be a lot more under pressure. Now, we said we wouldn't go too far down this path, <laughs> this path towards this being a negativity, but we're setting up here the situation that we're in. We all know that we're in it. Um, the, at the very end of all this stuff, though, it is interesting to note that there are some very, very physical uh, results which are being um, pointed out, which can um, create issues which might not be quite as uh, easy to um, get past as being a little bit of uh, agoraphobia at the beginning or a little bit of xenophobia when we all finally get to go back outside. 
to quote some uh, science for a second rather than just my opinion, uh, Grant et al. in 2009, Cole, Cole et al. in 2015, Murphy 2017, and um, uh, how do you say this? BZ, D-O-K, Bzdok and Dunbar, <laughs> 2020, have all pointed out that loneliness is increasingly recognized as a public health issue, especially due to the detrimental effects on health and the potential for premature mortality. Okay, to quote, loneliness is associated with fields of emptiness, sadness, and shame, alongside the subjective perception that one is disconnected from others. Okay, that is something which none of this is new. Shankar et al. in 2011 point out, and I quote, loneliness has been an emerging issue in society in recent years. This is uh, before 2011, and has been linked to depression, irritability, and preoccupation with negative self-related thoughts. Also, alongside this, a 20% increase in the risk of premature death. Research suggests that this has been a growing problem in industrialized countries with approximately one-third of the population affected and one in 12 people affected at a severe level. Further, it appears that income and socioeconomic status are no barrier to loneliness. Everyone is equally at risk. And that's um, uh, Holt and Lundstad and Smith in 2016. So five or six or up to 10 years before we even uh, heard the words COVID-19, people are already starting to recognize that the modern industrial world is one where people can end up very disconnected and very separated from others. If Aristotle is correct, a man is a social animal, what exactly does happen when you start to remove those social ties? Social isolation and loneliness may be stronger predictors of suicidality than other well-known risk factors such as anxiety and hopelessness. That's a hom et al. in 2017. So we don't want to beat this thing to death too much because uh, we, we're all very aware of the issue. I'm going to be uh, the one that's responsible for you uh, uh, slipping to a, a lower level of uh, depression. Um, the question now is, how do we get back from here? So I've got um, I've got a, a blog here which I wrote in 2011. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, it's it's kind of uh, it's from this period of the of the year. It was just before Christmas. It was 2000 and. Uh, 2010, I guess, the Christmas, I was about a thousand miles southeast of Cape Town, uh, going through a little uh, couple of islands there. I think it's that Prince Edward Island. I remember there was um, there were uh, penguins in the sea and dolphins in the sea and petrels and albatrosses in the air. And I was I was very much on my own. If I remember correctly, it was just before it was just before Christmas, and I. I had recognized that it was going to be, I had recognized I was going to be on my own for Christmas. I was sailing uh, solo through the Southern Ocean. But um, what I did is I, I put as much effort as I possibly could into the emotional situation around, around Christmas. And then I ended up really, really enjoying Christmas. And I wrote, uh, I wrote this uh, blog. It's, uh, it's not too long. Let's have a see what uh, we, we get from this. It says, um, Christmas has no meaning down here. Trees, presents, Santa, turkey, tinsel, ha, it's all poppycock. And yet, was it not our Northern European ancestors that thought the best way to break up the cold winter hardship was with, was with a bit of a shindig around the winter solstice? It seems they realized pretty early on that having something to look forward to for a few months and to talk about for a few more might take the drudgery out of so many long, dark days and hard work. It's obvious, really, 
that in the middle of a cold, hard period, the best thing to warm the heart is time spent connecting with those who are important to us by making or strengthening our bonds with one another in the light of light-hearted shared experiences and a good hot meal. Christmas, or rather the trappings of Christmas, might seem a little out of place in this environment, and yet perhaps this is their finest backdrop. I have one string of tinsel and a tree, and I'm really looking forward to hanging them up, not because they represent anything in particular, but because looking at them will make me smile and remind me of lots of other Christmases spent with friends and family. Just the change in interior decor will be uplifting. I also have some presents to open. I have no idea what is inside, probably very little, but I can feel already that the fact that those people thought of me and put them on board to brighten my day will have a very great significance. By the time I open them, I will be about as remote from the senders as it is possible to be, and yet in that instance, I know they all might very well be sitting here with me. I'm sure at that point, I may need a moment alone, which shouldn't be a problem. Life is very simple out here, so let me tell you how I see it for what it is worth. Life is very simple out here, so let me tell you how I see it for what it's worth. What can you see out of your window? As I look out of mine right now, I see a turbulent, savage world which cares not for my fate. Towering seas topple over one another as they chase my little craft along, which in itself is barely under control as it is blown hither and thither by these icy southern winds. I know that if I'm not careful, all this will attempt to roll me over and over and flood into this little warm cabin where I'm sitting writing and try to snuff out my lifelight. It's all terribly obvious and simple. How do I keep it at bay? With seamanship and care for my vessel, with forethought and careful consideration of my actions, and perhaps some technical skills I've picked up along the way. But that is not the biggest threat, is it? The question really is how do I keep the idea of it at bay, which without limitation would seep in here much quicker than the water, twist me up and rot me from the inside out and leave me an emotional mess, much more likely to make the life-threatening mistakes I am trying to avoid. I am trying to avoid. How to avoid? How do I avoid that? Easy. I grasp hard onto every opportunity I can get to have a little fun each day and create in this small space around me a place of safety and light that goes beyond simply the carbon hull and the LED lighting, but extends all that out into a place of comfort and sanctuary and happiness. Is this self-denial? Maybe, perhaps. It is easy. I grasp hard onto every opportunity I can to have a little fun each day and create in this small space around me a place of safety and light that goes beyond simply the carbon hull and the LED lighting, but extends all that into a place of safety and comfort and sanctuary. Is this self-denial? Maybe. Perhaps it is only an illusion, but how much better to be standing here enjoying the illusion should the worst happen than cowering in the corner with my fears. Christmas is part of a process of positive reinforcement of what is important. It was only ever intended to be that. It has been hijacked a number of times and stretched and pulled all out of shape. But when you get back to the heart of it, as being alone on a 60-foot boat in the Southern Ocean tends to make one do, it is just meant to be a little fun to break up the cold. So I'm going to put on a Santa hat and take pictures of myself getting soaked on the foredeck and email them home for no reason 
then it might make people laugh. I'm going to try to remember some Christmas carols and yell them discordantly to myself at the top of my voice, perhaps with all the extra verses we used to make up at school to boot. I'm going to pull a cracker just to hear it go pop and enjoy a meal that I designate as Christmas lunch, whatever time it ends up being eaten or whatever it says on the packet. And on this one day, I refuse point blank, refuse to let any thoughts of loneliness or sadness get in. There is enough time for all that the rest of the year without ruining the one occasion Western culture gives us to wear ridiculous hats and decorate trees. I'm really looking forward to Christmas this year, but I know it will eventually have to play second fiddle to next Christmas when I have the chance to understand the stark contrasts people experience at this time of year and appreciate the little comforts of home. Although I, like many others, have sat and berated the loss of the real Christmas, even within my own lifetime, I've also been blind to how much my year, whether I like it or not, revolves around these few days. I have, I know, talked of the spirit of Christmas, but being unaware of what it really is. Well, I can tell you that the easy lesson in this comes when you end up on your own, miles from anyone, and experience the awful waves of loneliness that come with certain stimuli, like pitting up the tree or handling gifts sent from loved ones. The direct comparison to other happier Christmas periods surrounded by family and friends focuses the feelings like the rays of a magnifying glass in the sun. Now, to put my plight in perspective, for me a few phone calls and a slightly squashed mince pie, an extra 20 minutes of sleep and a tin of rice pudding will no doubt soothe my disquiet and tide me over until another year. So there is no need to send the lifeboat just yet. But my experience makes me aware that others have it much worse than I do. I have a challenge for you then. If you're enjoying Christmas with loved ones this year, but you know of someone who is not, or through one thing or another is alone, your neighbor perhaps, or a relative, colleague, or just someone you met out walking the dog, then for God's sake, ignore their excuses, ignore your own embarrassment at asking, and bring them home and sit them down at your table and share the warmth and the laughter that this time of year is all about. So that's, that was written, as you can tell, just before Christmas. But I think a lot of the messages that are in there uh, work when we are talking about isolation. At the moment, clearly, you can't go and grab people off the streets and bring them into your home. But you can have a conversation at six foot distance with somebody because, you know, just my little investigation of my own life this morning, I got eye contact with a couple of people. I felt threatened by the delivery man and I'm not going to see anybody else for the rest of the day apart from my cat. And I may have one uh, WhatsApp uh, video conversation this evening for half an hour. And that's it. So I've made eye contact with a couple of people. I've listened to the radio. I've uh, listened to some music. I've had a bit of a weird interaction with the uh, delivery man and I'm going to have a half hour conversation. Now, as I say, I'm okay. But for others, they may not even have that half hour conversation. They might not have the delivery man. And the effect that that's going to have on them is huge. So whilst we are all getting ourselves, you know, our knickers firmly in a twist about uh, vaccines coming and this and that, the best advice on what we should be doing to look after ourselves and those around us and dealing with uh, COVID um, is, is a lot more focused around um, professional medical uh, opinion. This is not an area of human experience that is without um, precedence. The, the, the anguish which we are feeling, the pressure that we are feeling, a lot of it comes from the fact that we are comparing what things used to be, and we are frustrated that is not that way anymore. 
and we are desperate to get back to that. We see a point in the future that we're trying to get towards and we feel imposed upon and, and, and held back from getting to that point. The key thing that mental health professionals point at is that accepting where you are is the most important thing. And then trying to make that space as good as possible for yourself. That's the only way you can move through such troubled times where things are very different from the way they have ever been. There are people in our community right now who are having to deal with things that we would have never have said that we would ever have to deal with. The unexpected loss of relatives is, of course, one of them. Not being able to cross international borders when we're a world which has become so used to travel, now suddenly we can't go and see people in other countries. The idea of, well, if we live in Canada, it's pretty close to the US, we'll always be able to see grandma, that's off the table. It may also be that, uh, well, we'll go and live in uh, Toronto and uh, grandma is in Hamilton, so we'll still, now we can't go there either. It may be that grandma lives just down the road and you can't go and see her. So whatever choice you've made or whatever level, suddenly being unable to travel makes it very, very stressful. And that last loss of connectivity is something which um, we are not able to uh, deal with. Um, people also, of course, have had to deal with the fact that loved ones have passed away and they've been unable to see them in the last periods of their lives, have been unable to have proper um, ceremonies for them after they passed away. These are unbelievable times. But we have to stay focused on the fact that if we are forever pushing, pushing, pushing to get back to port, we can never enjoy the voyage. It cannot be that you are at sea on a voyage, desperate to get to where you're going because you will, you will end up hating the voyage. This is a wild and, and, and windswept sea that we are on at the moment with COVID-19. But I remember at the very beginning of this saying, this was not going to be um, the, the COVID-19 blizzard. This is the COVID-19 winter. And we are now uh, at a point where we need to have tactics at play that we can uh, rely on, that we can use on a daily basis, which are going to get us through it, the people around us through it, and the people that we interact with on a daily basis. At a personal level, here's a thought from uh, Lao Tse, which is, you know, <laughs> a couple of thousand years old here. Um, to quote, he says, water is fluid, soft and yielding, but water will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. As a rule, whatever is fluid soft and yielding will overcome whatever is rigid and hard. This is another paradox. Whatever is soft is strong. So as we um, recognize these extra layers of crap being laden on us by the situation we are in, we have to remain a little bit philosophical and recognize the stress that we're under and then alleviate it by uh, letting go of the frustration that we have been moved from where we want to be and that we are desperate to get back to that place. We are wherever we are right now and we have to do the best with it. We have to make the little uh, metaphorical vessel that you're on as light and as bright and as positive as possible. What I used to do on the boat when I was at sea on my own, there was always a very like heavy feeling on that boat. I'm not sure if it... Um, I do kind of believe in the supernatural a little bit um, with 
respect to um, sp spirits, the continuation of the human spirit after death. Uh, and I'm not sure if there was like sort of something on there or what it was, but there was always this feeling of like that something bad was going to happen or bad, something bad had happened. But then it could also, it could just been the fact that I was petrified most of the time. Um, the, the thing that I got around it with is that I used to have um, six o'clock disco. <laughs> so you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? So I used to put the stereo on as loud as I uh, could tolerate. Um, I think it was Nelly Furtado, Maneater was the song. It's got a great bass line to it. And I used to jump up and down on the back deck, like really physically jumping up and down, like pogoing like it was the 70s um, and just thrash out to that. And of course, you know, supernatural things. Yeah, take it or leave it. But whatever it was, it made me feel better about it. I did something physical that was positive for me. Um, building that kind of thing into your life, um, building that into into your um, time at home can be hugely beneficial. Uh, kitchen disco is another great way. Moving and having fun with music could be one of the best ways of uh, creating a positive effect in your life at the moment. Um, if you're going to listen to music, there, there are great tunes to be gone through, of course, but don't keep going round and round and round on the same tunes. I remember I got stuck in a bit of a loop of, uh, is it the Beatles or something? It might have been the Beatles for some reason. I think it was them. But I can remember just becoming so frustrated and so angry about the fact that it was only this this one particular track. Then I realized I was scanning past loads and loads and loads of other things. But I just decided that I didn't I was I didn't listen to those things. They are not my music. Um, so I started to investigate new things. Other films that you haven't watched. Other films that you always just flick past on Netflix. Just pick something at random and just watch it. It'll, it you know it'll be different at least. Um, the power of radio as well, I think, is the other thing. It was Freddie Mercury that said um, uh, that radio was yet to have its finest hour. And I have to say that at the moment in the situation that we're in, I think radio is very important because whilst it's great to listen to music, and of course now through Spotify or you know iTunes or whatever you listen to, um, you can get any piece of music. But radio will bring you things that you're not expecting. It's new, it's novel, there's discussion, there's discourse. And of course, there's so many different radio stations from all different sorts of places around the world. Put on a radio station from a completely other place. If you don't speak any other languages, put on Australian radio, put on New Zealand radio. You just have to ask Google or Siri or Alexa, just ask them for a radio station from the, another country. Put on Nigerian radio, put on something different from somewhere else and, and just bring new and novel things in. Because if you start to get stuck in too much of a rut, whether it's on a boat at sea or in your house or whatever it is, when you get stuck in that rut, things start to get bad. And when things get bad um, at the moment, there's no particular way out. And obviously it can snowball where you realize that um, you're kind of a little bit powerless to stop what's going on at the moment. You might go, oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in COVID. Well, that's great, but you're still going to get arrested by the police if you go out, if you're living in Ontario. You're still going to have to put that mask on if you want to go in the supermarket and you still can't travel because you're not going to be allowed to get on an airplane. So whatever you think or don't think, there are limitations that are in your life that weren't there before. Accepting them a little bit and moving forward within a new framework is a very positive way of, uh, of exiting this situation without too much damage. Now, in the... Uh, the blog that I wrote, I'm talking about the fact of reaching out to people. I think at the time I was uh, talking about reaching out to people in a very physical sense, but in a more metaphorical sense, you know, 
other other people. I've I've been very lucky in the last um, month that um, a group of guys that I traveled to Hong Kong with when I was 18, we went out there with a UK charity called Project Trust. Uh, one of the guys, Ben, uh, got in contact with all of us. We've literally not talked properly in 20 years. And they just set up a WhatsApp group. We just started chatting and it was absolutely brilliant. And of course, as always happens with these things, within the first week, they were reminding me of things that I'd completely forgotten about. They were uh, reconstructing uh, uh, memories which I had, but showing me that I'd already started to remember things incorrectly. And uh, we now have the excitement of being able to get back in contact with them in the coming uh, weeks and, and share what's going on in our lives. Are there old school friends? Are there old university friends? Are there people from... Um, from other jobs you had, other events that you've been involved in. Uh, have a look also, you know, if you're in yacht clubs, if you're in cruising clubs, um, a lot of the the old boys that were uh, hanging around those places, the, uh, the more senior members of the club, they may well be uh, down at the club all the time and, and real kind of bastions of what's going on there because there's not much else going on in their life. And if it's uh, now winter, of course, and the club's closed and they haven't been doing much through the summer because of COVID, you know, reach out to them. Obviously, you know you're going to be able to talk to them about sailing, but what is there that uh, other things that are going on in their lives? The, the fact of the matter is that you could um, do four 15-minute conversations with uh, people through the day, and you would have lost only about the amount of time it takes to watch a modern TV show. They're about 35, 40 minutes long. You're going to faff around a little bit at the beginning. You're going to faff around a little bit at the end. Maybe there's adverts if you're watching it on cable. That hour could be for 15 minute conversations with, with all sorts of different people. It's gonna be good for you, it's gonna be good for them. And uh, it's gonna build all sorts of relationships and connections that you didn't necessarily know about. You know, if you wanna be absolutely kind of, um, uh, what's the right word? Uh, <laughs> like kind of uh, mechanistic about it and capitalistic about it, there might be opportunities here to develop your business in new directions. Maybe there are people that um, you can connect with and are more receptive than they've ever been before. And what a fantastic way to show the depths of your personality and your care and consideration. Obviously, avoiding the fact that you're only doing this because there might be a benefit to you, but the, you know, to actually take the time and effort to, uh, to reach out to people is absolutely uh, the number one way to, to show uh, the very best of who you are. I'd like also to remind you about the fact that there's something called paper and pens and uh, and things called stamps, and you go and put things in 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 a in a metal box that they have in the street. Now, I literally received the first two letters that I have received in years, years and years. I received them; they're written handwritten on paper, uh, little drawings, and all and so uplifting, so fun. Like when did we all get so damn cool? that we can't write letters, we can't draw little cartoony things or pictures of, you know, the, whatever it is that's fun between you guys. There's there's always something that you can share with somebody else that is um, lighthearted and shows them that you had uh, uh, them in mind as you completed, you know, uh, a labor-intensive task. Writing a letter is not the same as texting or or, or emailing or something. Um, writing a letter is very different. Again, when I was at university studying um, linguistics a, a long time ago, we did an experiment. It was 1999, 2000, around then. And uh, email was on its way in. I think I got my first email address in 1999. And uh, 
there was certainly a lot of the interactions that we had as students with the tutors and with the administration of the university were through email. Although I didn't really email to like my parents or friends at that time, it'd still be phone calls or letters. But we did a little experiment, myself and some of the other students as part of our linguistic studies. And we wrote out a number of different scenarios, like uh, you want to borrow some money. You want to inform somebody that uh, a mutual friend has died. You want to um, uh, try and collect money from somebody. You want to break up with someone you're in a relationship with. You want to tell them about a movie that you've seen. All these different like bits of information from serious to trivial that they wanted to communicate with people. And then we, uh, on the other side of the little kind of survey, the grid that we were getting to people to fill out was uh, the options. Now, I think there was texting. Yes, yeah. so it was text, email, um, letter, phone call, or in person. I think that was the options. Uh, something around there. You get the idea. And then they had to say which ones they'd be happy to do. Um, and people didn't want to break up via text and they didn't want to break up particularly via email and they didn't want to ask for money via email. And they certainly wouldn't be telling people about a death through, um, uh, through a text or anything. They wanted to make a phone call or uh, have a letter. There used to be a lot more importance given to uh, the letter as a form of communication, the telephone call. Now, 20 years later, I think a lot of people don't really phone. They certainly don't write letters. A long email is considered to be a, uh, you know, well, thank you so much for the effort. I get um, digital uh, Christmas cards and digital birthday cards. And I, and I have to say, uh, unless isolation is the issue, unless um, there's some physical reason why that's being done through illness or, 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 or you know, a child sending something to you, which, you know, it's lovely when they think of you in any way, um, digital uh, Christmas cards and digital birthday cards I, I won't even spend a second looking at it. It's so meaningless. Um, the whole point is in the physicality of it. So a great way to connect with people at the moment. Now we could say, oh, but you have to, you know, uh, um, <laughs> be careful about the transmission of the virus and stuff. Oh yeah, I suppose you do. And you could write on the outside of the letter, you know, I wore my mask while I was writing this letter and I put a glove on, like if it's really important, if you're sending it to someone who's at a high risk group, you want to do that. But I think most people recognize that the virus can't exist in more than a couple of days on the post and uh, the post never moves faster than that. So, you know, what a great way to be able to connect with someone and show them. There's a lovely story. Um, I don't know if it's real or if it's apocryphal, but it goes something like this. The teacher um, in, in an African school is uh, receiving gifts from the children at the end of term. And uh, one of the boys whose family is very poor um, puts a shell on her desk and the teacher says, well, that's a very beautiful shell. Uh, where did this come from? And the boy names the beach that it came from. And she says, well, my goodness me, that's a very, very long way away. How did you get this? And he says, well, I walked there. And she says, my God, like you walked all the way there and all the way back just to bring me the shell. And he says, the gift was the walk. It's not about the thing, like a letter is just a piece of paper with some ink on it, but the gift is the effort and the time and the focus that went into it. So as we try to alleviate the anxiety, the depression, the xenophobia, mood swings, the agoraphobia, and the uh, depression of those who may be affected by isolation, remember that it's just little things. Maybe 
that person who I took an extra bit of effort to try and really smile with my whole face with. Maybe she didn't see anybody else today and just seeing a stranger's eyes light up above a mask was enough. Um, maybe the um, delivery guy uh, had been getting super negative responses from everybody that he met that day. And the fact that I was cheery with him, despite the fact that I felt a little imposed upon, maybe that made his day. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I affect uh, other people. I do know that my own emails are getting shorter and a little bit harsher, and I need to be careful of that. So I guess as I come to the end of this uh, podcast about isolation, I'm not sure I've transmitted huge amounts of uh, technical data. If you do want to get um, a real look in at um, what's going on with this, I can suggest very strongly the uh, NCBI, that's www.ncbi, November Charlie, Bravo, India, dot N-I, no, N-L-M, that's uh, November Lima, Oh my God, these people have got the most impossible, <laughs> impossible email address. Oh, okay, look, it's www.ncbi.nlm, November Lima, Mike, dot N-I-H, November India Hotel, dot G-O-V. Good Lord, I don't think they're going to get many people on that. Um, I will put the link in the description. Um, it is a fantastic uh, document called The Psychological Consequences of Social Isolation During COVID-19 Outbreak um, by uh, Gerda Piet Pietrabiesa and Susan G. Simpson. Um, it is, uh, I think, something that we all should be aware of, you know, health and movement, um, getting out and being healthy, stretching, uh, trying not to overeat, um, trying not to overwatch. These are all things that we need to be aware of, but we'll see ourselves getting fatter. We'll feel our bodies getting heavier and less limber. But are we taking note of the psychological effects of uh, being on our own and other people around us being on our own? We need to be uh, aware of this. We need to be aware of all different groups of uh, human beings um, and their stresses that they're under at the moment. And we need to think of this like, uh, like, a, like a vessel at sea. There was a beautiful phrase in... Um, in the 1960s, I think it was, which was lifeboat earth. And I actually do an after dinner speech back in the days when we used to do things like have dinners and go to places. I used to do an after dinner speech called lifeboat earth, which is looking about the sustainability and um, the uh, similarities between being on a boat at sea and the much larger issues of, uh, of the planet and, and where we're all kind of going in terms of environmental damage. And I think the phrase lifeboat earth really help to press home the idea that we're not on some like um, giant impossible to sink vessel uh, in our planet. We're already in the lifeboat. Uh, we are already in something that's so critical. If we lose this, all is lost. Um, the situation that we're in at the moment with, um, with COVID is that we are in the lifeboat already. We're in the COVID lifeboat. We don't have anywhere else to go. We don't have any particular options. There's very clearly a physical threat, but it would be an idiot who would think that survivors in a lifeboat weren't being affected psychologically uh, through what had happened. So act in your day-to-day -day like you're not the captain of the vessel at sea. I would urge you to act like you are the captain of a lifeboat. The people around you are already under pressure. They are already isolated. They are already uh, in a situation which later may cause them to um, 
experience PTSD. They are already in a traumatic circumstance. How can you make it better? How can you make your own situation better? Um, what can we do to make sure that we all get where we need to go in our little precarious lifeboat with as least damage as possible? Right. Well, <laughs> I do. It all ended up a bit negative there. It definitely wasn't intended to be negative. Um, I think it's just, it's not really possible to, sometimes there's a problem, isn't it? You, things are very serious, so we act like very solemnly. This is a very serious situation. I would say that the, the, the solution is to be jovial, but to be focused and to be very mindful of what's going on. But um, it can end up a bit doom and gloom. But I think we just need to be thinking about what's going on behind the eyes of people around us, what's going on behind those masks, what's going on behind those closed doors. Um, people are under pressure and we need to think about that in our everyday life and, and act accordingly and uh, accepting what's going on and, uh, and trying to do the very best we can to be positive is the, is the best possible chance we have of, um, of coming out of this uh, in the best form that we possibly can. So with more uh, thought than I've ever said it before in one of these, I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're safe and sound and that um, you're keeping yourself and those around you uh, happy, positive and, uh, and safe and healthy. And uh, if you're in the UK listening to this at the moment, please, please do everything you possibly can to uh, snuff this thing out by uh, staying locked down. And bear in mind that it is the small uh, breaks of the rules that create the problem. Uh, one big party of a load of footballers does not then make the whole country get it. It's the, I'll just nip out. We'll just go and nip and see my mum. I'll just take the dog over to my friend's house to get it, you know, groomed. It's all those little things that are adding up to it. I know there are a lot of other territories that are under the same kind of pressure. Ontario this week is going into the same sort of situation, level of seriousness the UK is in. Wherever you are, please be as safe as possible and um, just do something, anything you can. I strongly suggest Nelly Furtado, Maneater, and jump around like a crazy 70 pogoing punk. I think that's the best thing. I think, I think maybe I'll go and do that now, in fact. <laughs> Until the next one, cheers. Cheers.